Hello, my name is Maxine McIntosh, and I have the huge privilege of leading our diverse data initiative over at Genomics England, which aims to ensure that genomic medicine really does work for everyone. This week, myself and the other amazing members of the diverse data team are taking over the GWED podcast to host a series of discussions around diversity in healthcare, health and genomic data. These short sessions will hopefully give you a wee bit of insight into some of the complex issues we're uncovering as a team as well as hopefully some food for thought. We hope you enjoy them and we definitely loved interviewing family members, old friends, new collaborators who are all in some big or small way trailblazing in improving health and genomic equity. We would love to hear any thoughts you have on the subjects we're discussing. Our door is truly wide open, so feel free to drop me a message via the podcast email address, which is very conveniently podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, I'm Diksha Srivastava and I work at Genomics England in the Diverse Data team as Implementation Lead. I'm delighted to welcome my colleague Dr. Prabhu Arumugam to have a chat today with me about genomic diversity. Welcome. Uh, that was a very good attempt at my surname, but thanks very much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my family tree will be very proud of the way you pronounce that. Uh, and also, no one's ever called me Prabhu for about 25 years, so... Um... <laughs> also, better, better known as Pravs. Yeah, that's fine by me. And uh, we're, we're really grateful to have you here, and we'd love to know more about what you do at Genomics England and give us a bit of background about your career so far. Yeah, cool. So obviously after birth and primary school, went to medical school. So at medical school, I kind of spent most of my time enjoying my life, really. But then I actually started doing surgical training and then undertook a PhD in pancreatic cancer and then actually changed tracks, so became a pathologist. So I was really looking at kind of how cancer evolves um, and looking at down a microscope and looking at kind of where the novel novel kind of mutations were and what we can do with that. So that's how I kind of became interested in where we were going at, here at Genomics England. I also on the side um, kind of created uh, a cancer database for uh, pancreatic patients. Um, so became interested in kind of managing cancer data and the clinical associations we have with that. Um, and there's an opportunity here at Gel, so joined a couple of years ago now. Um, so at the moment, my main focus is kind of how do we improve clinical cancer data? Uh, and that's my real interest. Um, and with that, there's also now there's an opportunity to lead a project looking at how we link images, both radiology and pathology, to clinical data and also the genomic data. And I think that's a real kind of interesting aspect in the next few years of where we can take our diagnoses. Um, how we can make kind of targeted drug discoveries a lot better and improve that. So that's at the moment what I'm doing. Um, and it's really interesting. There's a lot going on at Genomics England. It's a good place to be and, yeah, enjoy myself at the moment. Um, I've enjoyed myself so much that I've actually um, left the NHS permanently. I think the pandemic, unfortunately, just kind of made me realise that going back to the NHS wasn't what I wanted to do and what was on offer at Genomics England and the kind of opportunities and avenues that were here were really interesting. So, yeah. I um, unfortunately jump shipped and left my colleagues in the NHS, much to my wife's dismay. Well, most people had the revelation during the pandemic that they needed to go back on the front line. But <laughs> I think you might be the first person who actively left the front line. Uh, but I think it's worth saying that your work here at Genomics England is equally, if not more impactful um, on the lives of many. So we, we thank you for your dedication, regardless, frontline or not. So given your 
years of work on clinical data. Um, I wonder if you would like to share about what we should be doing within the genomic research landscape and specific to diverse populations and whether there are any historical barriers that you've come across and how you would suggest addressing those barriers to diversity and inclusion within genomic research. Yeah, look, I think probably going back a step here, I think the importance of diversity and inclusion in kind of genomic research has probably been appreciated for a while. Um, and I think the motivation to conduct research in the context of genetic diversity are probably quite varied. But I think the, the reasons or the rationales in my eyes, I probably break it down as kind of the novel insights, understanding human biology, the improvements to clinical care and then potentially the last one would be kind of informing genetic diagnoses those are why i think we should do them and then if you look at them in a bit more detail so the novel insights i think the, the question there is what could genomic research help kind of shed light on genetic influences on health disparities so as an example here kidney disease for instance is very very prevalent in individuals with African ancestry. I think if you go back, there are variants in APOL1 as a gene that are associated with increased uh, risk of a variety of kidney diseases, um, in particular kind of glomerulonephropathies. And those are, by definition, very common in, variant, in individuals with African ancestry, but actually absent among those without African ancestry. So the question is, is um, you know, are those kidney disease risk alleles thought to be higher frequency because, you know, the, the theory is, is they are higher because they seem to provide also some resistance against, it's called African sleeping sickness, so African trypsinomyosis. So the question here is, is, is the frequency of those variants and the magnitude or the effect that they translate into, could that also be basically a public burden that we could, you know, potentially alleviate? If that is a targeted intervention and we could discover some kind of tar targeted therapy, would that potentially be benefit to us? Uh, and, and ultimately, that Apple One example kind of exemplifies how genetic variant could potentially contribute to ethnic disparities in you know diseases at risk. So that would be a novel insight. I think the other thing is then kind of understanding of human biology and ultimately, you know, do diverse populations in genomic research help to facilitate new understanding? So, and ultimately that's important for, I think you could say that's important for clinical practice and ultimately for public health. You know, there are variants that are present uh, not only in, or are present only or present only in very sufficient or very small quality quantities in potentially a, in a diverse population. Um, and how do you explore those if they are present? Um, so you know, there is potentially another gene that's been explored ultimately in uh, African-Americans, which is PCSK9, and, and ultimately is associated with a dramatic reduction in low-density lipoprotein cholesterol concentration, but ultimately is not really explored in those of European descent because ultimately it's such a small variant, why would it have been explored? And even those of African ancestry that were deemed normal, would it have just been a normal variant and would have just been ignored? So, you know, potentially those, those are targets that could be therapeutic targets. And actually, I think there was a few years ago, a couple of mon monoclonal antibodies therapies that were identified that potentially targeted therapy. So actually by identifying those, the, the benefit there is ultimately a better understanding. 
I think clinical care is quite interesting. You know, like ultimately pharmacogenomics is potentially the 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 aspect here. So you know, if providers can target therapies based on a patient's genetic profile, does that make that you know the precision medicine aspect much more focused and much more um, kind of specific? So that that's really interesting as well. And then ultimately, it's that kind of benefit of describing human history and the genetic diagnosis do we learn more from those with a diverse population so and it's that data that comes with that so if you include diverse populations um, in genomic research it generates data that's appropriate for that genetic diagnosis so uh, i think something that was looked at a few years ago was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and ultimately by ethnicity has a very very high preponderance in those of african ancestry but presentation is incredibly varied. You know, you can present with atypical chest pain. You can present having dropped dead. And actually, if you can identify pathogenetic variant, actually from a diagnosis point of view, that would be really, really important. And potentially, if this occurs in in a very high frequency in those of African kind of ancestry, how can we look at that? How do we make that a better kind of understanding? And, you know, I think that's where it's really interesting to kind of look at how diverse patients or participants in genomic research could potentially have had or could they have had a slightly inferior clinical care because, you know, the understanding of their diagnosis potentially wasn't as well understood and could have been improved in some way. So I think that's got us to a point now where if you kind of look at why we should do that, those kind of prior existing access to understanding and so on is is the problem but then there's also what i might describe as barriers to some extent in terms of our understanding so why are there barriers to diversity and inclusion in genomic research is there a problem beyond just what we're doing in our understanding Uh, and and that's kind of a multifaceted question I think you've got to look at the scientific community themselves. So, you know, like we're talking about participants, but also in the scientific community themselves, you know, from reviewers of publications all the way through to scientists. Like how many are from minority backgrounds, uh, diverse ethnic groups? Are they grossly underrepresented? You know, I've done a PhD and, you know, it was in a very large centre in East London, but the people that were in there, it was not a selective a cohort but it was not representative of the local population is that completely valid and ultimately you know if you have investigators and primary investigators or pis that have a personal connection or interest related to the communities that they aim to serve that kind of diversity inclusion amongst investigators and the kind of incentives that they will have to return to their own communities that kind of access, dissemination, benefit sharing, it could potentially open new areas of important and sustained studies. I think the other thing that we've probably also got to look at is, like, as a group, is our engagement. I think genomic research has opened up a lot of questions in terms of what we have access to. And in particular, that might be expedited in minority communities. So, you know, beyond kind of policy and barriers, Trust is a really important thing. You know, you've got to, from participant participant point of view, in terms of like, trusting the people doing your research and understanding that the ethics, the legal challenges, and particularly, you know, data sharing. Like, are they aware of how we handle data, how secure we are? 
we don't know. Like I think we've got to really kind of look at how we've engaged. Um, you know, for participants to know that there are kind of steadfast and trustworthy governance policies that will ultimately increase their comfort levels with genomic research. The benefits of sharing data potentially, community engagement, those are kind of things that we should also look at. Another barrier that I might potentially look at is the kind of, it's difficult to call this, but maybe the preferred cohort effect. So the vast kind of, if you look at the historic uh, data sets that we have, the vast majority of what you might call well-characterized, well-studied genomic research cohorts are usually of European ancestry populations. And then historically, that just leads to kind of research communities have always focused on those European ancestry populations and ultimately we're fed into that that's led to very large sizes of cohorts that are ultimately from European ancestry cohorts you know a, a lot of that now you know you talk about the n value or the n number of your cohort that sample size is ultimately a key factor on publication so are we artificially skewing our study designs to ensure that we do have large n numbers that we do get that publication and ultimately our next grant. It's a question to ourselves, really, isn't it? Um, I think another kind of interesting point is, you know, we, we talk about GUAS, so genome-wide association studies, and, uh, you know, sometimes they come in and out of love. But ultimately, GUAS in European ancestry populations, potentially, have we identified all the common variants? Is there a declining usefulness of GUAS? But actually, Yes, in European populations, potentially, uh, but in diverse populations, I don't think we've answered all of the questions yet. And, you know, a really simple question is, is have we got a, a large cohort of published GWAS, say, for type 2 diabetes and African-Americans? Not recently, no. And these are the kind of questions that we should be ultimately looking at. So, yeah, I think there's there's lots of kind of really interesting points. Um, and I think it's kind of how we we were going to approach that, really. Absolutely. And from what it sounds like, perhaps, along the steps from the end-to-end journey, there seems to be barriers at every step of the way, um, whether it's for engagement strategies, whether it's the recruitment process, whether it's diversity within the workforce that are engaging with this kind of data and how they're analyzing the genomic data. The the problem almost feels a bit nebulous um, and, and can feel daunting to even start to address, especially considering that decades of efforts have gone into improving the diversity of genomic data. So what would you say is the most pertinent step to kind of intervene at at the moment? Ultimately, we we all have to kind of look at this as a whole, like really simple question, you know, are African or Asian ancestry populations receiving the same level of care as those of European ancestry, purely just due to the limitations of data that we have that we can interpret and we can understand. You know, are all of our populations harmed when scientific achievements are installed by gaps in research and policies that impair discovery? So, you know, we are all one population. We should all have equal rights to the same amount of access to data, to the same amount of access to a kind of clinical treatments, really. So, I think disparities in genomic research, biomedical research, you know, in particular to those of African, kind of Asian, Hispanic ancestry individuals, it's not going to be 
uh, ameliorated without significant concerted effort. You know, simply just kind of increasing the number of well-characterized diverse samples in the short term will provide, I think, a significant step in moving things forward. And actually, that could be the kind of the position and the trigger. If you look at China, China is funding a lot of its own kind of genetic association studies, and it is trying to develop its own cohort. And those are really interesting kind of unique cohorts that have not been funded before. And I think in the same way that we as Genomics England are being funded by the Department of Health to look at this diversity problem, I think these are the really important steps that we can at least begin to make that kind of public dialogue, make people aware of this need, um, how to engage with our local communities, how to bring them into research studies. I think we can be at the forefront here in the UK to do that, really. And that, uh, I think that's a first step towards at least making, you know, I, I think the challenges are significant, but I don't think they're unsurmountable. Um, and, you know, as long as we can demonstrate that you know, we can develop resources, we can overcome potentially technological limitations. You know, there are other questions that are asked if you look at kind of the public domain, you know, should we be incentivizing diversity to bring in populations? I think that's probably not for here and now. I think the first step is at least making us or making this problem aware and actually starting to deal with it. I think that's the most important bit, really. Absolutely. And I think you've uh, hammered the nail on the head with um, ensuring that we bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And you've really drove that point home. So thanks for sharing what you think would be the appropriate short term as well as long term solutions. What does the current situation look like uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion in the workforce? And how does that impact diversity within data sets, whether it's genomic or otherwise? I think diversity is a very broad kind of statement. Like if you look at work population of clinicians in England, you know, like my wife is a consultant geriatrician, but she is not a well represented cohort of NHS consultants. The predominant focus of NHS consultants is male. So actually we haven't really focused here on when we talk about diversity, actually females that's a that's a really important pertinent kind of representation here you know does that mean that we're not really exploring diseases pertaining that are only to women do we not look at that as much is that an underrepresented cohort i think the answer is yes in all honesty and and then beyond that is also kind of uh, from this point of view is the ethnic minority representation i think the last few years actually you know when i was at medical school I had a very mixed cohort. I was incredibly privileged that we were in a university in East London that had a very, very diverse cohort. Um, and it's great to see, you know, like a, a lot of my friends are now NHS consultants and are of a diverse um, diverse or ethnic background. So I think from that point of view, ultimately it's dependent on where you are. You know, I know friends that have come from other universities and they've not had quite a diverse cohort. But Ultimately, overall, yes, there is ultimately a preponderance to NHS consultants being of European descent and male. And, and it's the same in the research world as well. So, you know, how many professors are there with a scientific background that are female? Again, not that many. So we have to look at that. Um, I think that is a discussion for us as a research community. And then also from a diversity point of view, how do we make that? I don't think I ever saw any kind of 
unfairness and people were selected for roles that you know weren't good enough but what is it that's preventing minorities from accessing science why do we not make that more accessible to young people why is that a problem is it a problem um and i think we've got to start basically from the, from the very beginning so if the workforce is diverse and representative of what the real community looks like then maybe the engagement strategies that we're using in in the real world and on the ground are reflective of the experiences of the workforce that are in place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you can look at this at very individual levels. Like um, where where I was doing my training, again, the population was very, very diverse. You know, we had um, Bengali populations, we had South Asian populations, we had Eastern Europeans. Um, and for instance, if you're in a cancer clinic and you need to explain ultimately what is a very very difficult diagnosis to someone and you're trying to do that in english and maybe their first language isn't it's a really simple thing but how much are they taking away and they might nod and go yes they might even sign a consent form uh, and by definition i think i've done my bit but actually you know, i'm quite lucky i can speak another language so if someone was tamil I could talk to them in Tamil and actually suddenly their understanding is very, very different. And actually then, you know, you suddenly realize that they've understood what's going on. And it's the same way, you know, I had a boss that could speak other languages as well. So we could converse in Bengali. We could make these typical diagnoses. Do we really explore that enough with our own patients? It's a, it's a challenge that, you know, having such diverse communities, how much do we reach out to them? And I, I think COVID, in the last couple of years has been something that's been kind of brought that to light. As soon as COVID became a problem, most of the literature about what you should be doing, the precautions, all in English. Um, and it took us a long, long time to provide that in Turkish, that in Bengali, that in Hindi, like other languages that are very, very prevalent. But it didn't. It didn't reach these communities quickly enough. And then ultimately, if those communities are not really isolated but not informed, how quickly will they respond, even their local leaders? You know, if you look at their kind of religious and cultural leaders, were they aware completely about how and what we should be doing? It's not for them to provide literature on what you should be doing, what is safe and what that means. And it's hard, like, you know, to even engage and work with these kind of communities. We need to be at the forefront. We need to do that. We need to set the examples and the precedents and really lead on that ultimately what is engagement and communication piece yeah i think the covid example you used is great and probably something that we need to kind of get ahead of the curve on in terms of the kind of language we use the amount of cultural sensitivity and competency we're using in our strategies uh, in engaging communities that we haven't engaged with in the past yeah and you know it's always going to be it's never going to be straightforward it's never going to be easy but I think, you know, we, we talk about the idea of that public dialogue and this, these are the kind of examples that we've just got to get to and begin that communication, begin that discussion and make it, you know, like I've been in research for years, but getting my mum and dad, for instance, to understand that they might need to do a clinical trial, like my dad got given the option of going on to the diabetes trial and he just didn't do it because he didn't quite understand it. And I wasn't there to kind of explain that to him and just taking that extra bit of time just to say like actually there is a value to you and 
he didn't quite get it. And actually, he's you know, it's not because English is not his first language. He's very competent at it, but he didn't get it. And I almost kind of was like, no, you should have done that. That's a very valid trial. But, you know, this is someone that's close to me that is still actually a prime example. Whereas, you know, like how many other populations, how many other groups of people are we just missing and kind of brushing over? Because we don't, and ultimately, like, do we have the time? Do you have the capacity? There's so many issues we've got to address, but it's just getting a sense of this is a problem and this is what we've, what we're faced with and just starting a process is all we can do really isn't it absolutely and um, that's uh, the per- a perfect point that you've made I always say that I know I'd have succeeded in my job if I can ensure that my parents understand what I do on a daily basis yeah and it's not about you know their lack of understanding of English or their lack of understanding of scientific knowledge I think it's just having access to um, the the benefits of what um, a clinical trial can offer them, what the benefits of personalized medicine can offer them, um, making that a, a more accessible conversation can definitely yield in a more equitable approach to uh, recruitment into these clinical trials. So yeah, thank you for shedding light on that. Um, I know you mentioned that you've left the NHS and the pandemic really made you aware that perhaps being on the front line wasn't for you, but we would love to hear more about your experiences as a junior doctor within the NHS and how that's kind of framed how you work now at Genomics England. Oh, life as a junior doctor. I think anyone that's been a medic will probably tell you that life is hard. Um, you know, you see some very, very difficult things. Um, I have lots of mates who are not medics. I can tell them on a day-to-day basis, just root, what I thought would be routine, and it's it's completely not to them. Um, you know, you explain an autopsy to someone, and suddenly there's a lot of slightly perplexed and bemused expressions. So, yeah, like your experience is very different to what the rest of the world would probably see i think it's very hard you're you're faced with some very difficult positions as well you know like you, you see death almost on a sometimes on a daily basis um and you need to form your own coping mechanisms how, how do you cope with that amount of difficult situations like what you see what you experience i think that ultimately does shape you in some way whatever you think about it whether that is in your day-to-day work and how you are but you do become resilient to some extent you kind of have to become resilient so I think I will always have that appreciation of the medical world like what I saw and what I had to experience you're working in very very difficult and stressful situations uh, and and you you do see the best in people in those situations and that kind of really kind of life is on the line that's when you see the best in people you see how people really do care and how they commit and how how hard they work and it's at all hours of the night i think that's what is amazing you know 24 hours a day seven days a week if you have a problem you can rock up you can turn up in a hostel and there'll be someone who's an expert who can deal with you and help you out and that's incredible that's part of the nhs i think for me it, i found it challenging just because I wanted to do more and I wanted to experience more and I want to see life outside the NHS. I think that was just a, a personal curiosity. And I think what you can do in the NHS is phenomenal. The amount of research that you can establish, what you can kind of explore and do is be is incredible. But actually that, you know, the idea of kind of even clinical trials in the NHS is quite a challenge, you know, like how do you make these 
trials and how do you kind of improve the visibility of research work within the NHS is always going to be a problem. And then beyond that, you know, had a great time at university. I can't complain. It's good fun. Um, and I think also when you work in that kind of environment with someone so closely, those are the people that, you know, become your best friends. In all honesty, my wife is someone that I worked with as a junior and, you know, we're married now. So it's been it's been a good life in the NHS. So you, you have a lot to thank the NHS for, especially your wife. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you so much, Prabs, for uh, sharing your experiences and uh, really diving deep into the issue of uh, diversity within genomic research. And we really thank you for your time today. And we'll continue to work closely with you to ensure that diversity is at the forefront of everything we do here at Genomics England. No worries. Cool. Thank you very much for having me and look forward to seeing how you guys get on. Well, unfortunately for you, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us as we meander through the highlights, challenges and implications of genomics entering mainstream healthcare. Remember, obviously, to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you've got opinions on these topics, which you should, or if you have any suggestions for someone we should interview, maybe even yourself, then please do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And remember, if you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review seriously helps other people find out about how wonderful we are and how great the series is. And I'd really appreciate it. So please don't make me beg. And unlike Uber, I've got no way to rate you badly if you don't do it. So please just do. I've been Maxi McIntosh. I don't know why people say I've been. I still am Maxi McIntosh. See you on the next episode of The G Word.